Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is, I'm Peter Whittle. Now I'm delighted to say that my guest this week is Charles Moore. Charles is the authorised biographer of Margaret Thatcher. The third and final volume of the biography, Herself Alone, has just been published. It covers the years from 1987 up to her death in 2013. Charles, of course, was editor of The Spectator, The Sunday Telegraph, and the Daily Telegraph. He currently writes a column for The Telegraph and for The Spectator. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, um, First thing I wanted to ask about this extraordinary achievement of this book is, did you think it was going to be three volumes when you started? Um, I did, because they commissioned me for three volumes, Penguin. And then when I'd done a bit of work, I thought, this is ridiculous, better be two volumes. And then when I did more work, I realised it had to be three volumes. So I, <laughs> I went back and forth. Um, and the reason for the length is the nature of the project, which is that um, she asked me to do it. And I was the first person to see all these papers, both her papers and the government papers of the prime ministerial office. Mm. Um, and I saw them in full and was authorised to see them before a lot of them were released. Yeah. And then authorised by her to approach everybody possible, so interviewed 600 people for the book. And therefore, that's why it's sort of in intended to be comprehensive and why it has to be long, because you, um, this is new material to a large extent. And mm. also it's necessary, I think, to try and cover all the main subjects. You say uh, that she wanted you to do it. How did it work, actually? Did you know her, Charles? Yes, I did know her, yeah. Yeah, and that's how it came about. Well, I don't really know how it came about, and I I never asked her why she wanted me to do it. Um, right. But anyway, she did, yeah. and uh, in 1997 this was. So basically, the whole thing has taken 20 years. Yes, uh, she asked me in 97. I got the contract from the publisher in the following year, and I think I started interviews in 99. So 20 years of actual work, mm. but I didn't do the hard work until. 2004 onwards because until then I was editing the Telegraph mm. till the end of 2003 nearly and um, I didn't really have the time but then I from 2004 I settled down mm. to the full thing. You know it's, it's a good point there because when I've said that I'm meeting you today what a lot of people have asked is actually a very harshly practical thing. <laughs> how do you do this on a daily on a day-to-day -day level how yes. do you work when you are writing something like this? Well, as a psychopath, um, as apparently forget, forgets his crimes, I can't really remember how I do it. Um, I can't, I've had no time really to look back on how I do it. Um, because of being a journalist and employed by the Telegraph, there are some days a week when I can't do it really because of writing columns. And all the rest of the time I am doing it was. And um, a lot of it is accumulation and sifting and so on, and then boiling it down to write. Mm. Luckily, being a journalist, I don't suffer from writer's block. I can write right. fast. Mm. But the amount of research is pretty stupefying. So, um, and also, you don't want to rush your fences. So you, you do muck around doing, asking a further question. I find the only way you know what you want to know is by sitting down to write, because it's only then you discover that what it is you don't know. Yes. You try to answer a question in your own mind and you find you can't. So you have to go off and do a bit more research and so on. So. Um, it's. I'm surprised by these people who quote do all the research and then write the book. Yeah, yeah. Don't quite see how that works because you have to s sort of taste, taste it before you can um, 
you know, as you cook it. I mean, you this this volume covers, as I said, the broadly speaking, the Cold War. Um, obviously, her well, the climax of the Cold the War, the climax yes. of the yeah. Cold War, uh, and also Europe and and her time after the uh, office. I mean, does it sort of when you were going through the stupefying amount of research, as you put it, mm. did it sort of open up? new things more than not? I mean, did, or did you find things confirming you? Or? Well, in some ways, Mrs. Thatcher is a very open book as a character because um, she was, in many respects, very consistent. Mm. However, um, you do find important things which are different from what you might imagine. Mm. And it, quite a few things surprised me. Obviously, because I covered it as a journalist, I knew quite a lot about it anyway, but fundamentally superficially yeah. whereas when you start looking at all of this so for example though of course I knew about her speeches about climate change when she um, was essentially in, she essentially was the first world leader to endorse the theory of climate change I hadn't realized how much time she gave to it how important she considered it and how innovative she was in terms of supporting the international process that was just getting going then and which we still have of the UN supervision through the IPCC and so on and um, like quite a lot of people of a conservative disposition I was slightly hoping that she had been misrepresented and didn't quite believe this stuff <laughs> <laughs> um, but she did and um, she slightly recanted in retirement but I think she really did believe it and, and um, it was very interesting to see how zealous she was and how yeah. um, persuasive she was in public and how how much she got involved in the science, because she was, of course, a scientist. Yes. Um, and another thing that surprised me was what happened about South Africa, and I mm. find this tremendously interesting, because we all know that she opposed um, sanctions mm. um, and very much did not want the South African economy to collapse. She thought there would then be violent revolution and communism might take over and uh, poverty would ensue. Um, and that's all known. And it's also known, to at least to some extent, how important she was for F.W. de Klerk in moving towards the end of apartheid. Yeah. What wasn't so known, and was almost new to me, was the extent of the British government's association privately with the ANC before the release of Mandela, right. which she, while always criticising the ANC for its socialism and for its flirting with violence, um, you know, with the armed struggle, that she did authorise such contacts and they were important and they built up a lot of trust and Mandela when in prison was very impressed by Mrs Thatcher because of what she'd done with Gorbachev mm. and he thought hmm well this really is remarkable and we're going to need a process like this we need we're going to need a white Gorbachev to come to terms um, and also I think he sort of thought of himself slightly as a Gorbachev because he wanted the reconciliation much more than most of the ANC did. Mm. So he was very, in a way, well disposed to Mrs Thatcher, though he jolly well didn't agree with her about sanctions or about economic questions. Uh, and, and she well disposed to him, sort of same thing the other way round. Um, she, she admired him, didn't she? Yes. And um, rather, this was utterly, this bit was utterly new to me, which is that after he'd been released and he be was able to travel the world, he quickly got very tired he was quite old and he was doing these very grueling tours mm. and because of the secret connection with the British government the ANC asked passed on a request to Mandela that could he have a little tiny holiday in Britain uh, looked after by the British government and um, so it was arranged that he should go to a sort of safe house a country house in Kent 
Um, and there, and looked after by the British government and mm. as their guest. And there he met Oliver Tambo, the other leader of the ANC, who he hadn't seen since he went to prison in 1963, and their wives. So it was a very sort of emotional yes. gathering. Um, and British officials were also there. And um, Mandela, um, as a, a private visit, obviously, indeed a secret visit, um, only there briefly. But at, at dinner, he drank quite a lot of hot port. He didn't, he didn't like cold alcohol, but he liked hot alcohol. And he drank a um, glass and a half of hot port and got excited and rang up Mrs. Thatcher at quarter to midnight. Um, and, um, <laughs> and there, you know, even though it was a Saturday night, I think, you, the indefatigable Charles Pohl was yeah. in, took the call, talked to Mandela, and Mandela said, I, I, I must talk to Mrs. Thatcher, can I see her? And Charles said, well, that'd be, I'm sure she'd love that, but what time have you got? He said, well, actually, I'm, in Tunbridge, I'm near Tunbridge Wells and I've got to get a plane at 10 tomorrow morning from Heathrow. <laughs> so there really wasn't time. Um, but um, she rang him at 7.30 the following morning because Charles wrote her a note straight away that night explaining yes. all this. And they had a very warm conversation, which though they disagreed, you know, you could never have such conversations with Mrs. Thatcher without disagreement at some point. But um, uh, she was so solicitous about his health and things, and he was very touched by all of that. Yes. And um, they agreed to, to meet um, a few weeks later, and he came to Downing Street, and almost uniquely, she shut up for 50 minutes while he talked. She let him talk uninterrupted for 50 minutes, which she almost never did anybody. And um, they went on for so long that um, the press, all standing outside in, uh, in Ted Downing Street, all started chanting, free Nelson Mandela. <laughs> 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 um, but um, uh, uh, I found it all very interesting that she had, very, very typical Mrs. Thatcher actually, that she had taken a very strong line yes. in public, which was certainly not hypocritical, it's what she believed, yes. but she also had a, a sort of back way. Yeah. Um, so she was aware, she was working for what came after, as well as fighting, as just fighting the issue of sanctions. You, you mentioned there that her reputation. Is it true to say that during this period, which was a kind of the imperial period in a way, these extraordinary clothes, mm -hmm. what have you, mm. um, is that a character, you know, this idea of her being, you know, absolutely unapproachable, not, you know, taking anybody else's opinion on board, all of these things, is that, is that a caricature? It, it is a caricature because though Mrs. Thatcher was very frightening, she did like to have discussions with people. And if she thought somebody knew about something, she wanted to have to meet that person. Mm. I mean, she did that very much with the climate change things, for example, all these people like James Lovelock and so on, mm. uh, um, uh, the sort of founding fathers of all of this. She was always very interested in ideas and policies and the people who put them forward. So in that way, she was open. She was much less open by this time to her colleagues because most of the senior ones had gone and yes. she felt she was sort of had grown out of that almost and was too negligent of them. Mm. Um, the other factor was that, which I think is people in Britain slightly forget, is she becomes such an important global figure. Mm. And this was perhaps too much to her detriment in domestic politics, but she'd been the senior leader of the Western world in terms of time serves right back till something like December 82. Mm. So here we are in 89, 90. She was very, very um, prestigious figure. Mm. and had huge, I mean, real adulation in places like Poland, Armenia, yeah. Russia, um, hundreds of thousands of people sort of throwing flowers in her path, literally, you know, I mean, mm. contrasting in a way, way that must have been very strange psychologically with, you know, poll tax right back here or whatever. Yes, yes. Bad opinion polls. 
and um, by-elections. And, um, and this perhaps did get her rather out of touch. I think a lot of what she did in this late period was important on the global scene, particularly obviously the end of the Cold War, mm. because she worked so hard for that. What, how important was ultimately her role in the ending of the Cold War? Uh, well, it was, it sort of went wrong at the very end, and I'll come to that, but the, the trajectory of it was very important if, over the 10 years, 11 years, because she'd been the first person to warn against detente with the Soviet Union because we were doing it from a position of weakness, mm. she reckoned. Um, so she started to build up the nuclear arsenal um, with support from President Reagan when he replaced President Carter. Mm. Um, and he gave the leadership and she gave the leadership within Europe on that. Um, then she thought, ah, we, we've done it. We've beaten them basically in t military terms. Uh, they're not going to dare to advance further. So now we've got to change the tone and find an interlocutor if we can. So she's the first person to find Gorbachev, mm. December 84. He wasn't even the leader at that point. Uh, in the famous meeting in Chequers. Mm. She then persuaded Reagan that he, he should meet Gorbachev and so on. So then she becomes very friendly with Gorbachev and her long-term tactic of engaging with the people of Eastern Europe as well as interstate relations, appealing to dissidents and to oppressed peoples and speaking directly to them, mm. also very, very important. So she became a heroic figure in Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia and actually in Russia. Mm. Um, very, very successful meeting in um, Moscow in March 87. So all this came together and helped persuade Gorbachev that you could move towards a really very different situation, yeah. both within his country and without, and, um, and help the Americans to open up as well and so on. That all went really, really well. And then right at the end, the problem arose that the side effect of the end of the Cold War was the reunification of Germany, mm -hmm. which scared her, mm. partly because she didn't like Germany and partly because she was worried that Gorbachev would be overthrown and the Red Army would fight back. Um, and sorry, yeah. I was going to say, was you know the, the dislike of Germany was that a kind of uh, cultural attitude that she had, or I think it was yes. I think it was to do with the war and um, you know the thing she said with a typical tactlessness to Helmut Kohl towards the end was um, twice we've um, rescued Europe from you uh, in in this century and now you're back, um, mm. and um, uh, that's how she felt. Mm. Um, but she also felt other things in relation to this which were more rational. There was this rational fear about the Soviets. There was also, she hated the fact that the reunification of Germany was taken by the European community to be the occasion for greater centralization and integration by Jacques Delors and Kohl in particular. And I found an interesting private conversation she had with Mitterrand just before her fall when she said, your idea that the single currency will bind Germany down and will be the price Germany pays for reunification is completely wrong. If you can create the single currency, Germany will become the chief economic power in Europe. It'll be run on German lines and um, they will rule Europe. And on that, regardless, even if you take out her anti-Germanism, but as yeah, a matter of pr yeah. prediction, she's correct. Mm. Um, but the, the Americans got fed up with her because Bush wanted to sort of pivot towards Germany. He also wanted to be more distant yeah. from her because he didn't like the way Reagan had, as he considered it, danced to her tune. And um, so she started to be the combination of um, Bush and Cole and, and Delore, I suppose, started to exclude her from the big stuff at the very end. Uh, she found that very frustrating. 
is it a caricature again to say that she was brought down by Europe? Obviously, the, her her downfall is a central part, obviously, of this of this book. I, I think I would say that, in an important sense, she was brought down by Europe. I think there were three fundamental factors, or possibly four. One was that the economy was going wrong because of the Lawson boom. Yeah. Another was the poll tax. Another was the feeling she's been around too long, we're fed up with her. Mm. Those were all important. Um, and they all affected public opinion and the backbenchers. Mm. But the, the way she was actually killed politically was really by the behavior of the cabinet. And they were much, were much more moved by Europe than by those other issues. And they were particularly horrified Jeffrey Howe and Michael Heseltine particularly horrified by the idea that she would weaponize, as people now say, the European issue electorally. Mm. They always want to keep it away as a subject that you know the electorate was considered too stupid to deal with, yeah, and yeah. Um, and she wanted to open it up to the public arbitrament and to um, raise a sort of democratic deficit point yeah, about yeah. the whole thing. And this really, really, really alarmed Howe and Heseltine. Um, uh, and of course, it was the foreign office and, all, and people like that were very worried about isolation and all the things. So, and she raised the subject of the referendum, which in, th in those days would have been on the single currency while she was still in office, just at the very end. In fact, yeah. partly with, in, in one case, an interview with me when she was fighting the leadership election, and another interview with a, um, a Michael Jones of the, of the Sunday Times. And this, of course, double alarmed the yeah. cabinet. Um, not only did she want to make it an issue at an election, but she wanted to have a special referendum. Mm. Um, and they weren't having it. And I think they thought, um, this has got to stop. During the downfall as well, uh, all the machinations going on, it's, it sort of reads almost like a, a thriller. Um, but you know, again, new light has been shed. We've seen mm. this um, characters emerging in a different light. I'm thinking yes. of John Major. I mean, can you explain a little bit? Yes. I, I think. The first important document I discovered about this came out, was written a year before, when she was challenged by Anthony Mayer, who was obscure, in 89, mm. in the leadership contest. It was a forerunner. And though she won the contest easily, people warned her that this, wasn't, this could happen again and it would be worse. Mm. And they really meant Heseltine. And what I found was a document by the Deputy Chief Whip, Tristan Garrell-Jones, written only to his chief, Tim Renton, which said the end of the Thatcher era is coming. And um, if we don't watch out, we'll get Heseltine. And we don't want Heseltine because it will split the party. And so we need to arrange what we do about it. Mm. And he said, this, all this that I've just described, all this will happen unless, and that's how his memo ended, just dot, dot, dot. Unless what? And I think what then happened in the next year was that people like Garrell Jones tried to concert an orderly change of power. Mm which would mean that Mrs. Thatcher would fall, though they wouldn't actively campaign against her and certainly wouldn't campaign against her in public, and that a succession would be organised which would be favourable to the Tory establishment rather than to Heseltine, who they regarded rather like Mrs. Thatcher, mm. though with different views, as an outsider. So these were all people in the Cabinet or near the Cabinet, and they were um, essentially trying to work out things to their advantage. Which, which, I mean, by the way, for not necessary discreditable reasons, because they... She'd gone on a long time. Yes. But nevertheless, there was obviously a strong element of self-interest mm. about how to position themselves. And what they essentially came to view is, we've got to beat, she's going to go, and that would be good if she did, and 
we've got to beat Heseltine. Mm. So they were kept on thinking, how do we do this? And what they decided was the best way to beat Heseltine was to have two cabinet members opposing him because that would drain more votes from Heseltine. Mm. And those cabinet members would be friendly to one another. So they would say, may the best man win when it came to the final ballot. So they decided really that was Major and Heard, the foreign secretary. Mm. And Tristan Garrell James was brokering it because he was a great supporter of Heard, but he's also close to Major. And various meetings took place. And eventually, from all this complicated process, emerged the idea from John Wakeham that she should see each cabinet member after she'd failed to prevent the second ballot. Yes. She should see, see each cabinet member and they should say what they thought. And the reason this was arranged in this way was that they would each tell her, or most of them would, that she should go. Because they'd say things like, I'll vote for you, but you can't win, yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. And the, the, the sort of slightly cant phrase they used was, we don't want Margaret to be humiliated, yeah. which is almost a code word saying we do want her to go. Yes. And, um, and um, what I discovered about John Major was, of course, he was not on the scene because he'd had his wisdom teeth out and he was at home in uh, Huntingdonshire when all this was going on. Mrs. Thatcher said when she, the second ballot was proved necessary, she rang up Major and heard and she said, will you second, will you support my nomination for the second ballot? And they said yes, but they weren't happy about it. And Major in particular, the reason they weren't happy about it was they wanted her to go. Mm. And the additional reason was they wanted to succeed her. Mm. And if she stood in a second ballot as cabinet ministers, they couldn't fight against her. So they'd have to resign from the cabinet if mm. they were to contest it with her. So Major had this great conundrum. If, I th if he thinks to himself, um, I don't sign her nomination papers, then people are going to be very angry that I betrayed her. However, if I do sign her nomination papers and she uses them, mm. Um, mm. Uh, I've had it. So what he did secretly was make, a, make an agreement with the whips and with um, Mrs. Thatcher's parliamentary private secretary, Peter Morrison, that he would submit the nomination papers signed by him, but only if he was promised that she wouldn't use them. <laughs> so he could say... Mm. I've nominated mm. her, but Peter Morrison w was under orders which he agreed to to withdraw the nomination mm. papers yeah. if she tried to use them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so um, it was a brilliantly sort of cunning piece of yeah. play. And of course, the one reason he did this was he wanted, if he was standing, he wanted the vote of Thatcherites. Yes, yeah. And if Mrs. Thatcher had known that this was his game, she would not have endorsed him in this. Yeah, exactly. And so it was a very cunning piece of politics which succeeded. He signed her nomination papers. He boasted in public of having signed her nomination papers, uh, but he made sure that they were never submitted, and he won the leadership. When she left, and uh, the period after, which obviously is a, a, the last third, really, if you're bored, um, there was an attempt, I, it seems so to I'll me... I'll turn this off, shall I? You know, there was an attempt, it seems to me, from, if you like, the intelligentsia, the people who hated her, mm -hmm. to kind of sort of take back her reputation or at least mould her reputation mm. retrospectively mm. In, in the public mind. Would you say that's true? I mean, because she didn't care really what they thought very mm. much, did she? She didn't care about no. Baroness Warnock, she didn't care no. about Jonathan Miller, any of these people. No. But essentially, once she'd gone, they sort of, there was a feeling that somehow the 80s, the Thatcherite era, was going to be basically seen as the most terrible, evil time. Yes, I think that would be the, the public doctrine it doesn't totally dominate by any means, but I notice the way this is dealt with, for instance, if I go on the BBC and do an interview, they always, first thing they always say is, 
Margaret Thatcher was the most divisive prime minister of our time. Yeah. They don't say she was the worst prime minister, they, they couldn't say that, but um, that would be the line. And of course, in certain respects, she was divisive. But they don't say, for example, which would also be true, factually true, regardless of whether you think she was right, the most successful prime minister of our time, by which I mean, she, in all the indices of political success, she succeeded. She won every election she contested. She won them all big. Um, she succeeded in bringing in most of the measures she wanted to mm. bring in. Mm. Uh, she had a doctrine or set of doctrines named after her. She was world famous, um, uh, very, very influential in every respect. Um, and of course, the first woman. So you could not say that she was not successful, even if you didn't. But I feel it seems to me that the right word for her is successful yeah. and then go on from there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's a pity if people don't know what she did. That's yeah. in a way the purpose of the book is yes. the need to tell it historically, not polemically. You know, I, I very, though I'm sympathetic to Mrs. Hatcher, I try to give all the points of view of the people who are engaged in the argument. And I, the, the thing is, very few politicians to use the cliche, make a difference. And she mm. clearly, clearly did. And that's very interesting to know what difference she made. There's, there, there, there is a feeling, I think, now that she has kind of broken finally away from that kind of character. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that a bit like Churchill, she has broken away from the Tory party? I mean, in a way, her, in terms of her reputation um, now. She's seen as a singular figure, isn't she? I mean, yes. some of her supporters, uh, we've had some on the programme, for example, like Martin Durkin, uh, the filmmaker, did a, a yes, film the, yeah. about... Do you think that she was a radical or a traditionalist, or was she both? Well, it's a very good question, and the answer is she was both. Um, she was a true conservative with a big C and a small C. For she was very loyal to the Conservative Party and um, in the country. She was a, the grassroots loved her. Mm. Um, she wasn't very enamoured of the Conservative Party at the top in the House of Commons. Um, her conservatism consisted in a great belief in... I would say it ultimately is, is a sort of idea of a Christian social order mm. um, and um, in the traditions of Britain right. and, the, and the, um, the established way of doing things. And the institutions. Monarchy and mm. um, parliament and mm. the rule of law in a particular form and all that sort of thing. She wasn't radical about that at all. She was extremely radical about what to do in the face of um, weakness and difficulty and failure in economic questions mm. um, and there she really did want to overthrow pretty well every orthodoxy about public finance, um, uh, trade unions, um, how you control inflation, um, who runs businesses, privatisation um, and uh, open up opportunities for people who hadn't had them and remove powers from people who'd abused them mm. and that was all tough stuff mm. and she would take on not only obvious things like trade union left-wing barons, but um, the legal profession, for example, because of its sort of closed shop practices yes, yeah. in the, uh, at the bar and that sort of thing. Um, all that was highly radical, and she was pretty ra radical in foreign affairs because, as I say, she doesn't just think of these things in, in terms of interstate relations. She yes. thinks of them as democratic issues, issues of values and rights and things. Um, and so... Uh, and she had an instinctive, she sort of um, liked the sound of breaking crockery. I mean, she, she wanted there to, she thought there had to be some conflicts and she didn't like consensus. In that sense, she was divisive. And she also didn't really 
She very strongly believed in the superiority of the Western way of life. She wasn't by any means so sure that the sort of institutions across the world that were supposed to protect it were very good at doing it. So she was sceptical of the United Nations um, and very sceptical of the European community and became more so and was worried that global institutions would threaten national institutions. You mentioned the, the economic struggles. And, uh, it, it, it would seem that most of her battles were economic ones, at least. In, Particularly in the, in the first half. Or yes. So, yes. In first, yeah. Do you think she had any sense of what we would now call maybe the culture wars? Um, or was it the fact maybe uh, that, that it just yeah, wasn't uh, an issue? Um, it was an issue. So she would... I don't think she would probably have used the phrase culture wars, no. but um, it was. You know, She didn't like the sort of arts that were attracted state patronage for the most part. Um, she didn't like the sort of trison de clerc in um, academia, which mm. was, I'm sure, one reason why Oxford absurdly refused the first woman prime minister and who'd come, of course, from Oxford, their honorary degree. I mean, the most extraordinary... I mean, only at Oxford could this have occurred. Mm. Um, and um, that sort of thing. Mm. And she, she was basically conservative in culture, not authoritarian, but conservative. So she would be um, take an issue like homosexuality. She was quite unusual in Tory backbenchers in the 1960s in voting for legalisation because she thought that it's a terrible infringement of people's privacy, mm. that they should be, um, wh why shouldn't they do whatever they want to do? On the other hand, she would have a slightly old-fashioned Christian idea that uh, moral education, uh, religious education at schools should um, favour the married, heterosexually married family life, mm. not um, alternative lifestyles. They shouldn't be persecuted, but they shouldn't be celebrated, mm. would be her. And, um, and so on. So um, uh, she, she disliked most of the sort of culture war innovations of the period. With that, I wouldn't, but it was not, I would say, reactionary. And that she wouldn't... Um, Oh, another one would be teaching. I mean, mm. she was very much in favour of um, learning to read and write and things like that. Which, are, um, and she, um, you know, she would describe the sort of radical thing with infants, which was making plasticine worms, that sort of thing, which she didn't like. Um, uh, so all of those things, you knew where she came from, but it wasn't the dominant thought in her mind. But so, for example, take the BBC. Yeah, uh, she would have felt that maybe it was unfair or biased, but she would certainly not want to get rid of the institution. That's right. Um, BBC is a good example. I write about that quite a lot yes. in this volume. She thought it was basically a good idea, because it, but only if it really conformed to its charter. Yeah, yeah. So that it ought to be a sort of so solemn responsibility of the people on the BBC, rather than just a vehicle for whatever they wanted to do. And she took very seriously their role in high culture, like... Um, programmes like Civilization and that sort of thing, and news, and she didn't really see the point of Radio 1. Um, and uh, I'm not that she was against pop music, but why should, the, uh, why should a nationalised sort of channel do yes. this way? Yes. Um, she wanted more pluralism, she wanted more channels, more competition, and she did quite a lot of all that. But her basic uh, approach to the, the BBC as a structure was not to abolish or even really much reform the structure, but put in um, one or two people who... Um, would bring about change. So the Prime Minister is entitled to appoint the Director General of the BBC, or was under that at that time, and so she put in Dukey Hussey to 
shake it up and he put in my uh, um, he put in John Burt right and between them they did a lot to make the BBC less infuriating to her and as she would see it uh, res restore standards so she didn't want it to knock it down but she did want to give it a hard kick yeah uh, when you you mentioned and go into great detail about uh, the final years of her life mm. and very beautifully written if I may say mm. um, do you there was a movie out a few years ago called the iron lady yeah um i don't know whether you helped on that no or certainly not certainly not and i um, wouldn't have done it but but um yeah. did, did, did that you know what was your view on that did did they get it entirely wrong i mean this no, is the meryl no, street film no it's a film of 100 percent useless politically that film yes um and um confusing historically but um it's good for one simple reason, which is that Meryl, St Meryl Streep captures Mrs. Thatcher in old age. It was very unfair to do that because she was, she still, was alive. still alive yes. and, you know, she was demented and they were portraying that. However, its, it, it's effect as a film, I think, has been beneficial to Mrs. Thatcher's mm. reputation because it conveys to a new generation something that people miss because she was so tough. They didn't realise that she was vulnerable and they don't realise that she paid a price mm. for all her great efforts and they don't realise that she had frailty and sort of there was rather touching aspects of her and this is very well portrayed and mm. therefore made her seem uh, rightly because she she was more human mm. you uh I, I have to ask you this question do did she know or what did she make of boris johnson well she did know him a bit um she would have done uh, at the end maybe uh, well by the time he became a political figure she was pretty well out of the political world yes but she knew him and admired him as a journalist. So she right. noticed when he started to write from Brussels in 1989 and greatly enjoyed those dispatches and sort of um, used to wave him around a bit. And you would have been his boss at that point. I right? was his boss um, uh, more or less at that. Not when he began in Brussels, no, but no. yes, oh, yeah, right. a bit later in the 90s, most of the 90s. And um, uh, she liked him and she liked his work and he was a great admirer of hers. They were never intimates or anything like that but um, Boris would be a good thing in her mind it were, and still well I mean I never talk about what she didn't what, what is a speculation yes but she was to, to the extent she had to do with Boris she liked what she saw you say the very final words in the in, in the in the book Charles are um, she gave everything she could yeah. the last words in the epilogue um, to use that famous quote about greatness, do you think that Margaret Thatcher achieved greatness or was born great? <laughs> well, you'd have to say both, I think, because obviously she was born with prodigious abilities. Mm. But it could have been like Gray's Elegy, which is an entirely a poem about um, people who haven't done things. Mm. You know, this mute inglorious Milton here may rest, this Cromwell guiltless of his country's blood. All these uh, people in a poor village who might have done something but haven't and the sense of possibility not fulfilled, but she did do it. So she could have been the muted, glorious grocer's daughter, um, but she wasn't, she was the, she did it. So by the most prodigious effort, I mean, mm. quite incredible effort mm. and commitment, I think, and sense of duty and very strong personal ambition. So mm. a combination of, if you like, selfishness or egotism, let's say, mm. and true service, um, did it. So it's a it's greatness in both those forms, I think. 
So you admire her more as a result of this, more or less? Yeah, more because, I mean, goodness, she could be dreadful. I mean, you know, terrible and difficult <laughs> and everything. But the thing was, um, uh, what you realise, what I realise writing the book is the difficulties she overcame were stupefying. Mm. The opposition, the problems, the fact she's the only woman, class issues, bureaucracy getting in the way, um, everything. Mm. And the fact she could achieve so much and do so much and communicate so much and care so much and keep going and win, keep winning, absolutely extraordinary. Thank you very much, Charles, for that. Thank you. The book, of course, is called Herself Alone, and uh, it is it's quite an achievement, the whole thing. Thank you very much, indeed, Charles. Um, we will see you next time. Um, do subscribe, as I always say. I'll see you next time.